0: Welcome to the Bold Movement Podcast. Every Thursday, you can expect an exegetical approach to scripture as you're led verse by verse through the real stories in the Bible. You can find all episodes of the Bold Movement Podcast for free on iTunes and Spotify. And every Monday, make sure to check out Bold Is. This week, join Meg as she teaches you God's Word and discover why, to this day, it's still as relevant and significant as it was then. Are you ready to be bold? Here's your host, Megan Rollins. Hey guys, it has been like a million years, but we're back and we're ready to rumble. So thanks for listening to the Bold Movement Podcast. As you heard, I'm your host, Megan Rollins. In this episode, we're going to look at Esther chapter 9 and 10, but before we do that, I want to mention to you that we are able to continue podcast episodes like this because of listeners like you who donate to our Patreon. If you like what you hear, would you consider becoming a partner of the Gold Movement? Our plans range from $1 a month to $50 a month with exciting incentives for growing Christian women. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash The Bold Movement. If you're new to our podcast, welcome! So glad you found us. Here's how we work. We'll read a verse or two of scripture, and then we stop to discuss what it means. And with that being said, let's dive in and study. Today we're going to be reading from the English Standard Version, which is commonly referred to as the ESV. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now remember, this was the day Haman had planned to kill the Jews, but the roles had then been reversed. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, which is K- King Xerxes, some of your translations might say, to so lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the s- say, uh <laughs> <laughs> Satraps, I don't know why I can't read right now, I'm so sorry. And the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. And um, the word that I really struggled with uh, pronouncing, the satrap, satrap, I'm not even sure how to say it, it essentially is a governing ruler in that province. Verse 4, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Mervyn Brennaman said he had gone through difficult days and he had been in danger of death, and he being Mordecai. But his crisis became in God's providence a stepping stone to greater influence. This fact is repeated often in the lives of God's servants. Verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also killed Parashandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspitha and Paratha, and Adalya, and Aradatha, and Parmashtah, and Arisai, and Aradai, and Visatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Haman, Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hands on the plunder. I want to explain something here. It might seem like the Jews are just going in and killing whomever they want, but that is not the case. Some things we need to keep in mind here are one, enemies of the Jews, right? These people were enemies. Two, those who hated them. And three, men, not women or children. Also, don't think of this scenario as a defenseless nation, but rather a population of fighting men. Okay? So these other countries and other people that they're fighting are fighting men who hate the Jews, who are enemies of the Jews, and it's not women and children, it's men. Okay? Let's continue on. Verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, were reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Okay, according to Baldwin, at the end of the day, the death toll in the royal Acropolis was reported to the king. By any standards, to lose five hundred men in one day was appalling. And there is a grim inference in the king's estimate of the total number killed in the rest of the king's provinces. That he should take it all so calmly and go so far as to offer Esther a further attack on his fighting men seems to Bruce Jones to accentuate the humorous element. The effect is almost slapstick. If they have done that well in Susa, think what it might be like in the rest of the provinces. He may be right, but the narrator gives no hint of humor in his strictly factual report. The Jews were also citizens of the empire and potential soldiers. The king was subjecting his kingdom to even heavier loss when he permitted Haman's original edict and and perpetrated the initial injustice. Do Christian readers and commentators think it would have been better if the Jews had been subject to Haman's plot? Verse 3. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Esther is not backing down or showing signs of weakness. Love this kind of leadership. It's so bold. (laughs) See what I did there? Okay. Anywho, until this point, the casualties have been from the Acropolis, opposed to the city. Obviously, this is where most of the population is. Esther wants another day where resistance there would be taken away. In addition to this, she wants Haman's ten sons publicly shown on gallows. She did this as a way of showing what happens when you mess with God's people. Same concept we see in 1 Samuel 31, 8 through 12 with Saul and his sons. Gosh, I love it. Okay, I mean, I don't love that people were dying, but I love that she has so much courage, braveness, and boldness. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Notice here that more Jews joined gathered with them to defend their lives. Also look here, it says they laid no hand on the plunder. They've said that about three or four times so far. The plunder was the material things left behind after the enemies died. Most of the times when you overthrow a country or village or whatever, you take their gold, possessions, women, etc. The Jews did not do this, which shows this is not for materialistic game. Verse 17, this was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested, and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews but the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth, and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the village, who live in the rural towns, hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. This is obviously a reason to celebrate, and so they instituted a holiday and celebration by having a feast. Baldwin says the second and third accounts of the institution of Purim are commonly supposed to come from another writer, but quoted in order to complete the, authentic- the authentication, wow, say that five times fast, of a feast which could not look to the Pentateuch for its definition and meaning. Nevertheless, written documents with royal authority lay behind it. Verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. Twenty-two. Verse 22. As the day on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned forth for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This is basically where Mordecai decrees that both the fourteenth and the fifteenth of Adar should be observed annually. He also specifies the gift to the poor, as we just read. Verse twenty three. And these are kind of like we're reading a whole bunch of verses, but they're so self explanatory, you'll see. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, with, that without fail, They would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Guys, that was the longest sentence I've ever read, and I tried to read it as if it was one sentence, so I hope I get a little credit for that. And basically... This is explaining how the feast got its name. <laughs> Seems like a lot of information to get the name. <laughs> Verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes in words of peace and truth. That these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. This is further official authority cited by the festival, according to Baldwin. This is where Esther puts her royal command on the festival. Baldwin adds on that the use of official names and mention of written documents make it reasonable to suppose that the author may have been drawing on legal material here. That's interesting, yeah? Okay, guys, we're almost done with this book of Esther. So what we're going to do now is look at chapter 10 real quick and then call it a day. Deal? Chapter 10. And this one is so short. It's crazy. So we're just going to put the two together. King Xerxes imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Baldwin says, though distant, these cultured regions were a source of wealth which successive conquerors exploited to the full. Over taxation was a feature of life in the provinces, whereas, according to Olmsted, Persia itself had long since ceased to pay taxes. In the time-honored method, each province had to provide supplies for the ruler during a fixed period each year. And uh, there's a cross-reference for that in First Kings four seven. Babylonia, for example, had to be responsible for four months out of every twelve, apart from normal tribute, the whole of the rest of Asia being responsible for the remaining eight. The necessity of contributing the supplies imposed a heavy burden and tended to keep the population of the provinces impoverished. The the conic reference, therefore, to the king and his tribute would have been sufficient to conjure up for contemporaries the daily anxieties of making ends meet, but without any... Sorry, but without in any way implying disloyalty to the sovereign. Verse 2. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people." The power behind the king of such a mighty empire was a Jewish man named Mordecai. Isn't it neat that exiled Jews are always moving their way up to essentially being the right hand of the kings? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Joseph, even though he wasn't quite exiled. (laughs) I love this. Thank you so much for studying the book of Esther with me. I'll be back next week where we will dive into a new book. The Bold Movement is an online women's ministry dedicated to teaching women how to handle the word of God. This is a quick reminder that you can partner with us through our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the bold movement. Okay, ladies, until next time, go out and be bold.